Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch, where we consider dogs, watches, life in the field, and go wherever curiosity takes us. Today on The Dog Watch, we connect with Tom Dockin, who runs Dockin's Oak Ridge Kennels and has been training dogs for decades. In our conversation, we discuss the basics of training bird dogs, the incredible flexibility of the dog as a subject of training, when to start, and techniques of training, the significant effort it takes to train a dog to be comfortable with the report of a gun, and also learn about Tom's path into his life as a top trainer. He even helps us all, including the host, understand the difference between decoys and dummies and why he developed the dead fowl trainer. Our featured dog this week from the feed is Diesel, a Newfoundland. Individuals this breed, known as Newfies, were bred in Newfoundland and were used to help on boats with fishing nets. Although it seems almost too obvious to say, these are big dogs, with males topping out at 130 to 150 pounds. They also produce a proportional amount of slobber. They are friendly, gentle, although they are just a bit too big for many to serve as a family dog. Before we start our conversation, please take a moment to visit the On The Dog Watch website and subscribe and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, we head out to Northfield, Minnesota to speak with Tom Dock. Today, we have the great fortune to be joined by Tom Dockin, who runs Dockin's Oak Ridge Kennels in Northfield, Minnesota. Tom is the author of Tom Dockin's Retriever Training, The Complete Guide to Developing Your Hunting Dog, and also invented the Dead Fowl Trainer. Tom, welcome to the Dog Watch. Michael, thanks for having me on. Well, as a way to start, I saw a photo of you in a, a flat-bottomed boat, I believe, um, at the edge of a pond. And you were training a dog, and it made me wonder, for those of us who haven't yet been to the kennels out there, what it looks like, and if you can kind of describe what kinds of buildings and facilities you need to train and and raise dogs. Well, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, it's it's about taking care of, we have clients' dogs and taking care of them and making sure that they're happy and healthy. So, you know, facilities-wise, you know, you have to, especially up in Minnesota, you know, you have winter. You got six months of winter, so you have to have uh, you have to have facilities that these dogs, uh, you know, can thrive in. And and uh, you know, right now, about ninety, I'd say ninety eight percent of the the hunting dogs that we train are family dogs as well. So they live indoors. So uh-huh. this isn't something where we would leave them outdoors. We have all indoor facilities. Uh, you know, so you you know, you really do have to take care of that first and foremost, and then. You know, from a hunting dog standpoint, you have to have facilities, you have to have property, you have to have land, you have to have, because we train retrievers as well as pointers and and spaniels and just about anything, you have to have areas where you train uh, that can simulate the hunting conditions that those dogs are going to be in. So, yeah, it's pretty extensive, the things that you have to have just to get the job done. Right, and you must have a, a, a lot of land down there, I would imagine. It's, it's pretty open space, but... Right. Yeah, we do. We have about 370 acres down there by Northfield. So, uh, you know, that's a, it's important to have uh, have a spot. Now, if you were just training obedience dogs just for family pets, which we do, you really wouldn't need all that much uh, area to do it. But when you're doing hunting dogs, you have to have, you know, a lot of land. Right. 
So I was wondering too, you've been at the business for an extensive amount of time and I'm wondering how you got into training dogs and kind of who taught you how to do it. Well, I really didn't grow up in a, in a hunting type family. So, you know, my story, you know, is a little different than maybe some people. So, uh, I, I know that, uh, when I was probably in my, oh, early teens, uh, a friend of mine and myself, uh, we started hunting together and he had a Labrador retriever and, uh, it was my first experience ever hunting with a dog. So, uh, after seeing what, you know, that was all about, I thought, wow, this is something that, you know, this is something that I really want. And, you know, when you're, when you're young and now we're in high school and you say, you know, mom and dad, I want a, <laughs> I want a dog. They go, yeah, I can just see this one. You know, <laughs> we're going to end up taking care of it and, and, and you're going to be off doing something else, which, uh, you know, sports was a big part of, you know, my upbringing, baseball, football and hockey, uh, in high school. So, you know, time would have been limited, but then uh, shortly after getting out of high school, it was, it was like, okay, I, I am going to do this. Got my first dog. Uh, it was a Labrador Retriever female, and I started running some uh, field trials just, uh, you know, for, you know, something to do with my dog, and and uh, competition was uh, something that I always enjoyed as well. And I always tell people, you know, she was my first dog that I had, and I tell people, knowing what I know now, she turned out in spite of me, <laughs> just just due to the fact that, you know, I, what I know now and what I knew then are two different things. But uh, the whole idea there is that I put in almost every waking hour training, and, you know, I have to credit the dog as well, going like, well, at some point here, this guy's going to make it easier for me to figure out what we're doing. And, and she was very competitive on a national level, and, and that kind of just springboarded me into thinking, you know what, uh, I want to look at this a little closer. Went to work for a professional dog trainer. And, uh, you know, we'd start off in Louisiana in the wintertime, January, February, and March, and uh, train and field trial all our way, all the way up through the states and then uh, eventually into Canada. So uh, it was a great experience, a great learning experience, and that's kind of how it started. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, some of the people who are listening will have a good sense of hunting and what it looks like and what you do. Some of the people will be more general dog owners or just people who are curious. When you said you started with field trials, you know, you got your first lab and you started doing field trials, you know, long periods in the day and then went to competition. What does that mean exactly? Well, you know, in competition, you know, and, and I'm sure that you know, anybody who's watched, you know, any television at yeah. all, maybe you they've yeah. seen some, you know, dog competitions, whether it's agility or something like that, maybe seen that on TV. Right. And retriever competitions would be something where dogs would have to perform a certain amount of retrieves, uh, some on land, some in the water. And, uh, you know, at distances nowadays, you know, these field trials, these distances, these dogs are expected to retrieve you know, are up to 450 yards away. Oh, and so if you think, <laughs> if you think distances, uh, when you look at a dog that's out 450 yards away, they're about the size of the, the lead on the tip of a pencil. That's how yeah. far, but they have to be under control. So it takes a tremendous amount of time and commitment, you know, and work, you know, to get a dog to the point, not only where you can control them 10 yards away, but at 100 yards away too. So, uh, it, and what it does is it, it really strengthens, you know, some of these breeds. And this is just a retriever I'm talking about. They have pointing dogs, spaniels. 
And maybe some people have seen uh, herding dog trials. And what happens is, you know, the best of the best and the smartest of the dogs uh, end up being the ones that are normally in the gene pool. So, you know, even if you don't field trial, your hunters who are looking for, you know, a dog that really wants to do the job for them, they're going to benefit because they're going to get, you know, the best bloodlines out there, which is, is important, you know, for us as trainers. If we get dogs that have great bloodlines, you know, normally speaking, they end up, you know, a little bit better when we're all done. Then that was really my next question was that I understand that you breed labs, right? Is that what you just breed labs or do you breed other um, types as well? Well, you know, our breeding program really consists of, and we've been at this for almost 50 years, and and if you think about it, unfortunately, most of these uh, sporting breeds or, you know, dogs in general, their lifespan is only 12 years, which is right. not very long, to be honest with you. So yeah. about every 12 years, you know, uh, a customer is going to be looking for a new puppy. And being as many clients as we've accumulated over the years, we'd never be able to keep up with the amount of puppies that, you know, we would have to produce. And I'm not going to have, you know, kennels and kennels full of females that their only job was to, you know, produce puppies. So if somebody was looking for a, a retriever puppy, you know, I know all the best, you know, breeders and bloodlines in the U.S. So okay. my customers will come to me and say, here's what I'm looking for. Uh, I'll find it for you. So we would we would uh, research, find particular pedigrees that I think would match that person, go out, we'd, uh, you know, make the connection with the breeder, get the puppy. So it's kind of a turnkey thing, okay. you know, for, for our customers. But uh, it is something we do offer. Although we train all breeds. I mean, if somebody right. had a Chihuahua that they wanted obedience <laughs> trained, we do that too. I tell people we're dog trainers. Uh, so you're primarily dog trainers, and the puppies are really things that if I came to you and said, I want a puppy, which – I don't. My wife just brought home another dog. <laughs> um, so, but you would find a puppy, help train it, and and puppies probably predominantly people who want to train them as hunt, hunting dogs or obedience trained um, uh, home dogs. Well, right, and you know most of the people would, if they're looking for a puppy, would probably you know with our reputation, they'd be coming to us looking for a hunting dog. Okay. But you got to remember that. You know, like I said, 98% of these hunting dogs now, they, they live in the house, which yeah. they didn't 20, 30 years ago. Oh, really? That dog lived out in the backyard. He had uh -huh. a kennel, and it was dad's dog. And and now, I mean, they have to be good family dogs, and they have to be well-mannered. So not just for, you know, not just for hunting, but, you know, they have to be, you know, a, a good member of the family. And a good member of the family means paying attention, listening, and and uh, fitting in. Yeah. Um as far as your training that goes, you train a lot of hunting dogs for birds, right? For ducks. And mm -hmm. I also understand that you have a, a kind of a niche on, on shed hunting, which I'd like to ask you about. But there are a range of hunting dogs, obviously, from hounds to pointers to retrievers. Um, and you said you would tra train, train a chihuahua. But <laughs> what what's the main range of space you cover in the hunting dog training world as far as breeds of dogs or yeah i mean i guess breeds of dogs and then purposes like you know i and again sure. i'm not much i'm not a hunter by by mm -hmm. um practice i just didn't grow up in a hunting family and mm -hmm. you know i see sort of there's duck hunting there's up upland hunting 
there's mm-hmm. hunting with hounds, there's deer hunting, which again, I didn't realize much about shed hunting, but I'm just kind of wondering where, where your focus is, or obviously you do different things, but how, sure. how people you know, understand that. Yeah. Our, our customers, you know, we get a wide range uh, of what people are looking for. So uh, we may have uh, some customers that go out, you know, say I hunt ducks and I hunt pheasants. So we have to teach a dog not only be to retrieve in the water and do all of the things that a, a duck dog would need to do, but then they also have to be able to go in the upland and search out, you know, find flush and retrieve birds upland wise too. Uh, and if it's a retriever, we expect them to, you know, be able to do both. Uh, if it's a pointing dog, most of the people with the pointing dogs are looking maybe a little bit more for a single purpose type dog okay. that will be in the uplands mm-hmm. uh, and work upland birds. So uh, it's, you know, every every particular breed has kind of its own niche on what they excel at. Uh, we find in the Midwest that, you know, we have a, a lot of different things. You know, you can hunt ducks and you can hunt pheasants and you can hunt grouse and do things like that. And, and a lot of these families can only have one dog. So they say, what... I need a dog that can kind of fill all aspects and then be a family dog on right. top of it. And You know, just being that we're in the Midwest, it is kind of retriever heavy. Sure. Uh, just because, uh, you know, of, you know, the things that we have to hunt in our location. So we, we get a lot of retrievers, although we train other breeds. Now, if we were down in, let's say, Mississippi or somewhere down south, it maybe it'd be more predominant pointing dogs because it's more of a quail Okay. type area more upland so uh a little bit ge- geographical and how did you get into shed hunting and and what is that for people who don't know sure well shed hunting is basically uh, antlers that you know that are on either deer elk uh you know in those areas uh, it, it basically those antlers are going to fall off because they don't stay on for the lifetime of the deer so uh, during the uh, the winter months, especially here in the Midwest, uh, the uh, the males or the the bucks will drop their antlers, and people like to go out. Uh, it's something to do late winter time, early spring. Go out, walk in the woods, and uh, see if they can find antlers. And mm-hmm. it was something that people have done for a long time, just without dogs. And it, I, I had seen where you know somebody had trained a dog to to go out and find antlers. And I thought, well, I'm a dog trainer. I should be able to do this. <laughs> and then also, I, I love to archery hunt for deer. So I always did it anyway. So then, uh, you know, we started training some of our own dogs to find antlers. It's something that they, they can go do in the spring. And springtime is normally when nobody's hunting any birds. Uh, so it's it's an activity that they can do. And so it, it turned into a situation where you go, you know, in order for this to kind of grow, Let's start a, um, a shed hunting trials for dogs where, you know, we can we can set up courses, have antlers out there and, uh, you know, set some standards uh, for, you know, uh, a trial system. And it started off with just a handful of people. And now it's it, these shed, shed dog hunting trials are all over the United States now. And we right. hold the world championships every year <laughs> wow. in Northfield, Minnesota. So it's taken off and it's cool. a lot of fun. People yeah. really enjoy it. And you could train, say, your dog or a lab, for example, to to do multiple things, to be a shed hunt, hunting dog and work the work birds and things like that. 
Sure, they can yeah. multitask yeah. as well, and it doesn't have to be a lab. But I always say, you know, the you know the really one main factor for a dog that's going to hunt for antlers is that they have to have a lot of retrieving instinct. Right. Yeah, because an antler is not too appealing, you know, especially to a, a dog that hunts birds. I mean, it's just yeah. an antler. So you have to have a dog that has lots of lots of retrieve desire, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a retriever. And there's people that compete with all different breeds in hmm. the trials. Yeah, cool. Another question I had is about decoys, then. I know what a decoy is and kind of looks like. and But I don't really know how in training or in practice the decoy would really be used, like if I watched you using decoys. And, and also, I don't. I know you've um, created this dead file trainer, but maybe you could describe what that is and how it's different than just a normal decoy. Sure. Well, we call them dummies, training dummies. Okay. Uh, decoys, and we kind of classify decoys as... as uh, uh, you know, fake birds that you put out in the water, plastic or wood or whatever to, you know, you know, get birds to come in. Great. But Thank training you. dummies, training dummies have been used for years, you know, something to throw for your dog that kind of simulates the game that they're going to be uh, out after. And uh, in the past, it was only like a canvas type dummy, uh, something, you know, s- cylindrical, or it was something made out of plastic. And one of the things that we found out from training is that on those objects, a lot of times the dogs may not pick them up properly. They might pick them up by the very end of the cylindrical tube and not really have a good hold on it and come in and they're dropping it most of the time on the way in and just just wasn't something that was working out. And so we came up with a product uh, that actually teaches, lets the dog learn on his own where he should grip uh, uh, the retrieve when it comes in. And then when a, when a dog is coming in with a bird retrieve, a real bird, you want them grabbing in the center of the bird, not on the head or not grabbing it by the feet. So right. uh, we came up uh, with the concept that uh, we have a training tool that will teach the dog on his own where to pick the object mm-hmm. up. And it's uh, basically the same shape and size of a real bird. We can inject scent right into the dummy itself so it smells like the bird that they're going to be after and uh, we got a patent on it and uh, you know it's something the nice part about it is it's something that the, the dog actually trains himself right how to handle it you don't have to jump in there and show him what to do so uh, and we've been fortunate that uh, it's been uh, very successful we sell them all over the world and and uh, you know every once in a while something works out Sure. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's nice when it does uh, in that way. And thank you for that. I guess I didn't know what the difference between a dummy and mm-hmm. a decoy was. So I appreciate sure. you clarifying that. Um, when when you do this work, obviously you have to do a lot of gunshots. And I know in reading some, some about your work and some interviews with you, it sounds like that's a big question and really important to do in a way that's um, in the right order. In, in other words, you can't do it too fast, etc. I'm curious how how you go about getting a dog to not be skittish. I mean, I saw my own dogs and puppies certainly thunder, um, fireworks, um, all that kind of stuff, just really skittish. So how, how do you deal with that, especially when you have dogs at different uh, stages? I guess you could move them around. Um, but at different stages of that learning and you're shooting off guns to try to help them get a, um, accustomed to it. How do you, how do you work that out? Well, sure. And it's, it, it would be one part of training that if it's done wrong, 
you will most likely not have a hunting dog. I mean, so really, you know, and if you make if you make the mistakes uh, with a hunting dog of not introducing them to the gun properly. I don't care. I always tell people, I don't care if you have the best bloodlines and breeding in the world, but if you do it wrong, there's a chance that the dog will never get over it and you won't have a hunting dog. So it needs to be a positive reinforcement. Uh, that's the biggest thing. And, and I'll give you an example of different ways that it can be done, and then I'll tell you a little bit about how we would go about it. So there's two ways of introducing a gun. It would be a tolerance introduction and a positive reinforcement introduction. A tolerance introduction would be you just go out and shoot the gun and hope your dog tolerates it. Hmm. The problem is I don't like anything that says hope, okay, because <laughs> if you're hoping, there, then there's a chance that it can go wrong. In That's a lot of right. cases, it will. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if somebody says, well, I'm going to take my dog to the shooting range, and then I'm just going to gradually walk him closer to where they're shooting. What you're really saying is I hope he tolerates it okay. and doesn't have a bad experience. So gun shyness is a man-made problem. Okay. Okay. It's not something that genetically um, the dog is predisposed to being gun shy. And, and then I've had people come up and say, well, you know, you know, my, my young dog is gun shy and uh, so is his mom. So it must have came from his mom. Well, right. you know, I, I have to tell them, no, it, it came from <laughs> you, how you introduce them to the gun. So let's go positive reinforcement, okay? So this is super, super important. So let's say uh, first thing that we're going to do, and we get these young dogs in when they're five months old, and we want to start them young, and we want to start them, you know, with something positive. So we'll get them very excited about picking up a pigeon, and just, you know, because that's what their instincts are. So we get right. them really excited to go and pick it up and go and pick it up and make it is, you know, just a great environment for them. And then we'll have uh, one of our assistants go out in front at about 40 yards and we'll be holding on to the puppy back where we're at. And he has a long cord on him. So we have control and he's going to have the assistant will have that pigeon with him, which the puppy now already likes because we've established that over a few days. And then he's just going to clap his hands and then throw the pigeon for the puppy to go retrieve. So we'll let the puppy go get it, have him come back in, give him praise. Now, if you clap your hands at 40 yards, I mean, you could sneeze and it would be louder than that. Yeah. But the whole idea is is now that puppy seeing that person out there, he hears that little clap, but then he says, oh, that's what I want. I and see. runs out there. So we would take a couple of days of doing that where, you know, then he comes in a little closer, claps and throws, claps and throws. And all we're doing is letting that puppy know that that guy has something you want. And when you hear that light little noise, that triggers going to get it. So then we'd go all the way back out again after a couple of days of doing that, as long as the puppy was having fun. They'd take a blank pistol, a twenty-two blank pistol, and a little pop and a throw. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the same process. And then each day, as long as that puppy is really excited about wanting to keep going out and picking that, that bird up, we would have him work his way in closer and closer and closer to the puppy wow. with the shoot okay. and the throw. And then once we get to the point where we can shoot next to the puppy and throw with the twenty-two blank, we have to go all the way back out again, and we start the next gauge shotgun, okay. which yep. would be a four ten gauge, you know, which is just a little more than the the twenty-two, and work that same process. And then we go uh-huh. all the way out again, start with the twenty gauge and all the way to the twelve gauge. So it takes us 
two weeks professionally to introduce the gun properly to a dog. Wow. So if if you're going to go out on a Saturday and do it, all you're doing is rolling the dice. Right. So sometimes it would work. Some dogs yep. would be fine, and some dogs it's pretty much closing things down and causing them to have probably out of fear, just like people and other, you know, when they have mm-hmm. a difficult interaction, it can stick pretty pretty much uh, for a long time. So yeah. interesting. So if I, yeah. yeah, if I broke it down, I said I want a person. I want a person to really love the gun. Instead of throwing pigeons, I'd have that person throwing hundred dollar bills up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you could get. You know what I mean? Then, fast, then they're yeah. going to be saying, uh, "I, yep. I want to hear that noise again, please." Right. Because that reward is there, so that's a positive reinforcement gun introduction. And do you use mostly um, like praise and things like that, or do you use food rewards too in some of your training, or or a mix? Well, you know, if you have. And we really don't take any dogs in for training until they get at least five months old. Uh, you know, we, we want them to be mature enough to be away from home, although they're not extremely mature at that point. Right. But I tell people, you know, when you take your puppy home, you know, when he's seven weeks old, you can start with doing some treat training. We're not really treat trainers by trade. Yep. But, you know, to put a leash on a seven-week-old puppy and start getting demanding, that's a recipe for disaster. But... As, as soon as that puppy will take a little treat out of your hand, yep. you know, start using it. Yep. You know what I mean? Start using it like, hey, come, you know, hold your hand down there. And he knows that that treat's going to be there and start using it for come. Right. And then sit. And the whole idea there is that early on, that treat training, he's really not working for us. He's working for himself. Right. But, you know, they're all canines. They're all predators, you know, even even if it's like a little chihuahua, like yeah. I was talking earlier. They all know that their canine instinct is to work for food. I mean, that's just part of survival out in the wild. Right. So we capitalize on that for about three to four weeks, and then we can gradually start working the leash in. So, uh, you know, you, you want to start getting that learning process as quick as you can. Right. Uh, in order for them to get their mind going. Most people just don't tap into that at all yep. and consequently wait a little too long to get things started. Sure. But it sounds like all of it, it's, it's reward-based rather than punishment. Yep. Early on stuff. it is. Yeah. And then it goes, then we go to the leash and then it then it transfers to praise-based. Right. You know, after we wean off of the treat part of the training when they're puppies. So when we get them at five months old and older, we aren't treat training at that time. Yep. Then it's going to be, you know, praise and reward based because that's really what you want. You want that teamwork. Right. You know, built in. Great. One thing I learned from a a previous guest on the um, podcast was the ability of dogs to respond to, say, pointing and things like that. And it got me thinking about how humans and sort of general humans who just have a, a familiarity with dogs often romanticize their senses, their scent and hearing and vision that they could smell a, I don't know, a bear a mile away, or, you know, there's kind of this lore that goes along with um, dogs, I think, sometimes. I'm curious, from your perspective, someone who's worked with dogs for a really long time and trains them to use those senses how do you think about dog scent and hearing and vision as far as especially sort of compared to ours um and how would you respond to someone who's talking about oh my gosh dogs can smell something a mile away or they can hear everything what would your response be well you know i think that 
you know, us as humans, we, we've been so desensitized to everything that our senses aren't, you know, aren't probably what they were a couple thousand years ago. Yeah. And we, we really don't have to rely on them, you know, to any extent for survival at this point in time. So, uh, and I think that, you know, canines are much more in tune to, you know, what their senses are, as long as you can put them in environments, you know, to actually use them. And, you know, people always say, well, you know, what does a dog smell? And I go, I don't know. I can't talk to him, so I can't <laughs> ask him. But I can watch them, and I can watch them work in the field, and I can see, and I can see what their capabilities are. Uh, and it is amazing hearing as well. And you know, people who have a dog that's in the house with them, you know, why is it that they always hear hear somebody coming from outside way before we do? Right. So I think that their senses are. Uh, you know, way more, way more in tune than what ours are. And then certain breeds, you know, eyesight, you know, these retrievers, because they have to watch something fall at great distances. Yep. I mean, good eyesight is really, really important for that particular breed more than probably some of the other breeds because they do have to be able to look at things from long distances and uh, be able to decipher, you know, how far they need to run to do it. So, yeah, I, I think that. I think that we don't understand exactly how great it is, but the more you're out in you know out in the field with them, you really start to understand that man, they got it way over us and and mm-hmm. I always tell a lot of people once your dog has some experience in the field and has a little bit of time on him, just say he knows way more about what he's doing out there now than you do, so just stay behind him because he'll he'll take you to where you need to go so right um, they are that capable. So it sounds like it's pretty actually well-founded praise for the for their senses. Oh boy, yep, yep. And you know, think about you know, think about them. And if you you know, we're talking about our pets and our hunting dogs, but you know, look at uh, look at the coyotes, look at wolves, look at any any predator species. I mean, they they've had to evolve those senses in order to just survive. So I mean, they're not. They're not using a you know a gun at a hundred yards to hunt their prey. I mean right. they they have to be within feet, you know. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you know for them, you know you know the ones that that don't learn it, they're not they're not around too long. Right. Yeah, it's it's a it's a matter of natural selection and and for yeah. us artificial selection. But um, yeah. question for you about breeds as a biologist. I look at dog breeds and look at the hunting dog breeds and understand that we've selected them, selected bloodlines to to refine certain traits. But then I wonder, I see all these crosses. I know some of them are, you know, a Bernadoodle or whatever, are not going to necessarily be great. But it seems like one would predict that at some points in time, you would take one thing and cross it with another breed and you'd get something great or something that's better. And I, I can't think of any examples of that. It seems like the purebreed dogs still seem to be the winners. I mean, I know we you, you sort of might take one that's a little bit different or whatever, but these true sort of crosses don't seem to ever... Ha- I can't think of an example where they've really been been fantastic at, at something and better than, say, a lab or a, a retriever in a certain way. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do see what you mean, and I think, 
you know, when you talk about, we talked a little earlier about the field trial part, even though, like, if you're talking hunting dogs, people say, well, I don't, you know, I don't need a dog out of that kind of breeding because, you know, I just want a hunting dog. But they've refined, you know, and developed, you know, these traits for generations and generations and generations. So you get that 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 pretty pure instinct. And it, an example would be, why does that, retriever puppy have to have something in his mouth <laughs> i mean whether it's your you know 200 pair of shoes or whatever oh, no. he doesn't know why he has no idea right. why he's running around always having something in his mouth i mean that's been bred into him and why does that pointing dog why is that pointing dog puppy pointing a fly on the on the coffee table yeah. they don't know why right but it's been bred in and a lot of times when you do crosses you're trying to you say well this this particular breed does this this particular breed does this if we combine them that dog will do be the best of both well a lot of times you don't get you don't get the trait you know the the traits that you want into that individual dog right so you know and we train you know we get some labradoodles i mean and golden doodles in for training now yeah. uh some are maybe stronger you know, than others, you know, from a, a hunting standpoint, they're all predators. So they can all, you know, function to a certain degree. Right. But do you get more of the uh, the doodle or do you get more of the lab or do you right. get more of the golden or do you get more of the doodle? And, you know, poodles used to be, you know, a, a strong hunting breed, sure. but a lot of their traits kind of went by the wayside. So they, they, all the, those breedings, they're bringing more of a coat. Right. They're bringing a coat, and and they're expecting the other side of the breed to bring all of the you know the genetic you know purification of of all of the natural instinct. So um, if they were meeting in the middle, with both of them had super strong you know hunting traits, right. then it would maybe be a little different. So. Yeah. Um, I would say that if you took uh, several generations, let's say, and most of the time you're not going to get, let's say, in a retriever world, you're gonna, not going to get a national field trial champion, and that would breed to a, a poodle. I mean, right. it's just they, that they probably wouldn't just do that. Yeah. So you're probably, I mean, if, if you really wanted to do something there, you know, if you if you got the best of the best of the best and brought that in, maybe you get a little more strength in some areas. Uh-huh. So, but I think you're accurate. I mean, the, the thought is good. Let's yeah. let's bring these two things together, and we'll have the best of both. Uh, sometimes you just don't get that. Yeah, and I would say probably the majority of the time you right. don't get it. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to think that it just doesn't seem to work that way very often, or often at all. So, well, I I um I want to be respectful of your time, but I have a couple just two maybe two more questions mm-hmm. for you. Sure. Um, the first was um. There's a lot of things that dogs can be trained to do, right? To heal, to point, to flush, all those things. I'm curious about dogs in general and maybe even specific breeds of dogs. Are there things that dogs just can't be taught to do that you'd love to teach them to do that they just they can't do or certain breeds just aren't able to do certain things? Well, they can't talk, and I'm kind of glad for that <laughs> some days. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but... You know what? If somebody really wanted to see some amazing, amazing talent, just go online and look at what some of the Malmois are doing. Yeah. 
so, I mean, yeah, uh, climbing ladders and just it. It really goes to show you, and those dogs. But to be honest with you, those dogs are extremely athletic. Yeah, they're, they're high energy, extremely athletic, um, and uh, and are extremely driven. So their desire to work is super high, which then helps. Like, okay, let's let's see if we can teach them one little step of climbing this wall you know a little bit each day right and then watch them work now they're high energy so i wouldn't say for people go yeah let's go get a malinois yeah i mean because it's like well this dog needs to work constantly yeah all right and there's some breeds that you know people go like well um jack russell's are a good example they are as cute as a bug but they're high energy. Yeah. So you would need to know that, okay, we need to be able to make sure that we can give this particular breed enough exercise, you know, to be able to, you know, make them manageable in the house or whatever. So, uh, but yeah, if you, somebody really wanted to see what animals are capable, go Google Malinois, you know, working or military stuff. It's, it, it amazes me or go watch border collies. Right. I love watching them as well. Yeah, and I guess that's where the question was coming from. I've seen a little bit of those videos, and it it's remarkable. And it, I mean, obviously, there's certain limitations, like you mentioned, speaking and and things they just can't do. But it's their behavior seems to be really malleable um, to being able to train to do just a huge range of things that we probably wouldn't expect. So. It's fascinating, and that's one. What's one really? big part of our job is that no two are alike. There are similarities in certain areas, but no two are exactly alike. But they may, as you gain years and years of experience in training, uh, you'll learn different techniques to get to the end line with all the different types of personality. Some are soft, some are medium, some are high, high energy, some are medium, some are low energy. But the whole idea is end up at the end of the day, have a dog that wants to work for you, uh, but working with what they have to bring to the table as well. So I always say when we're training in a new trainer, when they, when we start working with a new trainer, we say, you you know, you only have like a hammer and a screwdriver right now in your toolbox. You know, that's, that's the experience level you come with. And as years go on, you, you just keep adding more and more tools and that's, that's more knowledge you know, because you have to have a lot of dogs under your belt by the time you can go, I've seen this before, I know how to handle it, I know what situation is in. But that's what keeps the job fresh. Sure. Yeah, they do have individual personalities for sure. I'm, uh, so I, I have one question and one really short one, which really comes from my wife. Um, the question about obedience training for dogs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think if it's going to be a family dog, people think, or some I've heard people talk about how I don't want to have it trained to just be kind of a robot, right? I want it to be just sort of a free form family dog or whatever, and just be loving, et cetera. I'm curious from your experience. I mean, it seems like you can have both, but I'm, but I'm wondering, certainly if it's a work dog, you select for a more driven dog, you train it in certain ways, but I'm talking about sort of obedience training that you do. Is there any downside to it? No, not really. I mean, is there any downside to being around kids that are well-mannered? <laughs> I thought you might say you know, that. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You know, you, you know and, and I've commented to my wife. I go, boy, those kids are, those kids are well-mannered. Yep. I mean, and so, um, and, and, and yet 
you know they aren't you know they aren't in chains or anything right but, but really it, it revolves around if, if you want to really enjoy the, the dog that you have and you want to be able to take them anywhere with you anywhere you know then control will be important but right if I hand somebody over a seven week old puppy I could put it in their arms and say there's no there's no, nothing wrong with this puppy right now there's no there's no bad habits zero right none so it's up to you to put in whatever you want and it it's just a matter of being consistent and do you you know it, it's our dogs go everywhere with us yeah they're part of our family but sure if your dog is a nuisance won't listen won't pay attention you're going to find lots of reasons not to have them involved with what you're doing and that's that's unfortunate uh, but it's just a matter of just starting if you start them when they're little and just you know show them what's you know what you want but be consistent it's all about just being consistent right you know it really is and people say well can my dog be on the couch well I say that's up to you I mean it's not up to me but don't let him be up on the couch for a month and then all of a sudden tell him he can't right so you have to know you know what your environment will warrant and and what you want but uh, you know our big thing is is yeah we may be training hunting dogs but when that hunting dog is ready to go home the whole family comes and works with us oh really and I guess the question that the last thing I wanted to ask was is there a window I mean I know it's best when you get them at whatever eight months or seven months old a, a younger dog but can you train dogs that are a little bit older than that two three four years old and you do you take those in or is that pretty much too late well you can I mean you can it's just at that point it's it's establishing what habits are already there okay okay so remember a habit as it grows and grows and grows it you know anybody has a habit we have habits how how long does it take to break a habit and a lot of times breaking bad habits is like you know cutting dandelions off at the, <laughs> at the surface yeah you know and, and unless you're willing to keep you know cutting them off at the surface and not go down and get the roots they're going to just keep coming back so right it, it's yes you can but it really it takes a commitment there as well once you get some good habits in place is staying on top of them and not letting the dandelions keep coming up, so right. to speak. But yes, I mean, they can always learn. Most people go like, well, you know, my dog doesn't do this, this, and this. And I say, well, does does he know? Let's just say, does he know come? Yeah, he does, but he, he just, he won't. Well, the whole right. thing is he he knows the command. It's just not being reinforced. And that goes through. I think anybody who has a dog that lives in the house, really by the time that they're 10, 12 months old, the dog knows enough basics just for survival you have to teach him something right it's just a matter of then are you reinforcing it and, and being staying on top of it yep well i'm sure you've had long days out in the field training these days and especially in this hot weather i wanted to thank you so much for time and for helping us learn a good bit about what you do and about dog training and breeding and how um how decoys and dummies are are used um in, in the field and just what it looks like to be a dog trainer. Um, thanks so much, and I, I hope you have a great fall. Keep the keeping the dogs in line, and, and thanks so much for being on the Dog Watch. You bet, Michael. Thanks for having me, and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks again to Tom for sharing such a fascinating perspective on dogs. 
If you haven't done so already, put up a photo of your dog on our hashtag feed for a chance to have it featured as a new breed or a new set of breeds on an upcoming show. And also remember to rate and review the podcast to reinforce the behavior of Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts as they send it along to new people. Our music credit today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. This is Michael Canfield, and I'm looking forward to being together again soon on The Dog Watch. <laughs>